<clears throat> well, you know where to go to this morning, don't you? Genesis 49. That's where we have been this past uh, few weeks. Genesis 49 and Genesis 29. If you can find those two places, go to 49 first, put your finger in Genesis 29. So Genesis 49, uh, reading verses 5, 6, and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And then in Genesis 29, speaking of their birth, verse 33, this is speaking of Leah. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he therefore has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon, which means heard. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name is called Levi, or attached, or joined. So let's just stop there uh, just for a moment. Now as we continue to look this morning at the precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest, uh, which is reminding us of two things. Our study on the high priest garments uh, is reminding us of Jesus, our great high priest, and also parts of these clothes, particularly uh, the breastplate with the precious stones are reminding us of uh, God's people in the Old Testament. Of course, it was Israel, and uh, as far as we're concerned right now, uh, we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so there are some things that we can learn about ourselves here and lessons that we can glean from this. Now, you'll remember also that these stones on the breastplate of the high priest that they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, their names were engraved on each stone. Now, the order of the stones on the breastplate correspond with the order that was given in Numbers chapter 10. I know I've told you this before, but just to keep reminding you and keeping you up to date. Uh, uh, however, they're not in the order of birth. Uh, the order of birth was given on the two onyx stones on the shoulder straps of the ephod. And uh, so when you come to look in at the stones, uh, the, each stone is in order of the tribes rather than in order of the son's birth. And uh, this is largely how Jacob addresses him, them here in order of their birth rather than order of the tribes. And the first stone we looked at was a sardius stone representing Judah. Even though he wasn't the firstborn, he was the fourthborn, yet he got the honor of having the first place on the breastplate. 
The second stone was a topaz representing Issachar. The third stone, a carbuncle representing Zebulun. And the fourth stone, an emerald representing Reuben. Now we examine Simeon, represented by the fifth stone, which is the sapphire. Now, there are two sons of Jacob that do not appear on the breastplate. One of them is Levi and the other Joseph. Uh, now, Levi and Joseph both appear on the shoulder stones according to their birth, but they do not appear on the breastplate according to the tribes. Now, Levi became the priestly tribe which owned no land and was given cities instead. And Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both of them got a portion of land each, both got on the breastplate, because Joseph got the double portion which should have gone to Reuben, but because of Reuben's sin and instability, he lost that great privilege. And he lost the privilege to lead the tribes, which is why Judah became first. And he lost the privilege of the double portion that the eldest son would get. And it went to Joseph at that time. He was the youngest son. And uh, instead of his name going on it, his two sons' name got on the breastplate. Are you still with me? All right, now I know you have to think a little bit about that, but that's the way it is. And <clears throat> the reason why I'm telling you this now is because I want to include the story of Levi along with Simeon, although he doesn't appear on the breastplate, but I want to include him, and you will see the reason for that in just a moment. I'll speak of Joseph later uh, whenever we get to the part where we talk about his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who do appear on the breastplate. All right. Now let's then begin to look at what uh, Jacob said to them here in what is called the patriarchal blessing. So you remember that when he's old, he's dying, he gathers his sons around him, around his bed, and he starts to prophesy and speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's a rebuke, sometimes it's a compliment, and sometimes it's very prophetic, even far into the future. And so he's now operating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and listen to what he says about these two sons. First of all, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, he's not just stating the obvious here. Of course, they're brothers. They all know that. Everybody knew that. So he's not just stating the obvious here. They're brothers, not just biologically, but brothers in nature, brothers in character, brothers in attitude, brothers in action. Just like James and John in the New Testament. Remember those two brothers? Uh, they were brothers in nature. They wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. So they were very alike in that respect. And so he says, Simon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now remember, this is 40 years later, Jacob's prophesying to them. And the Holy Spirit is reminding them of something that happened 40 years prior to this that became a real blot uh, on their testimony, as it were. So what happened? What caused the Spirit of God to bring this up again? And what caused Jacob to want to separate himself from their dastardly deed? Well, let's have a look at this and see what happens. Turn with me to Genesis 33. Genesis 33. And towards the end of, end of Genesis chapter 33, 
<coughs> excuse me, we'll read uh, from verse 18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And he erected an altar there and called it El Elhoi, Israel, which means the God, the God of Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Uh, after all these 12 sons, in the midst of that, Dinah was born just the one daughter. Imagine being one sister among 12 brothers, eh? And so she went out to see the daughters of the land, in other words, the Canaanite daughters. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So that's a kind of a, <laughs> a dichotomy there, isn't it? He violated her, treated her abominably, and then says, but I love you. In fact, I want to marry you. And so Shechem went, spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock on the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. The men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriages with us, and give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. So shall you dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And Shechem said to her father, and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife." But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But you will not heed us. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. It's not saying too much for the rest of them, is it? But anyway. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city. 
and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in, the, when they were in pain, the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep and their oxen, their donkeys and all that was in the city and that was in the field and all their wealth and their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land and among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should we treat our sister like a harlot? So that unsavory episode was to live with these two brothers for the rest of their lives. Now there's no question that what Shechem uh, did to Dinah, their sister, was uh, abominable, it was disgraceful, it was totally dishonorable. Although afterwards, uh, he seemed to show some kind of, some kind of uh, repentance, could we say, uh, and wanted to marry this young woman and said that he loved her. So he seemed to want to redeem himself from his actions. But there's no question also that Jacob should have said and should have done more uh, to restore the honor of his daughter. Now perhaps he was afraid. We read towards the end there. Maybe he was scared because he says we're few in number. We're surrounded by the Canaanites and we're weak. Uh, it's not a good time to stir up trouble. It seemed to be that's what he said uh, regardless of what happened to his daughter. But he should have took more action. However, it is also equally wrong that Simeon and Levi, in their revenge and vengeance against Shechem, were unjustifiably cruel. And that's the thing that was really troubling. They were unjustifiably cruel. Did the punishment fit the crime? Jacob didn't think so. Certainly didn't at the time. And now we see that God didn't think so either. But to kill his father, to kill all the males who were completely innocent of this crime, and then to hamstring the oxen, to, to cut the tendons of the oxen so that they couldn't plow. I mean, it just was... A bridge too far, wasn't it? It was too cruel. It was too much vengeance. Too much retribution. So you see, Jacob was distancing himself from their actions. 
Righteous indignation is one thing. Being angry over injustice is one thing. But we must be careful in putting the world to rights that we ourselves are not found to be completely unfair and unjust and just plain vengeful in our actions. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we need to be careful. So many times God's kingdom suffers because men will not control their passions, their impulses, or their rages. And that's why Jesus turned around to James and John when they said, Let us call fire down from heaven and burn up these Samaritans. Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. I haven't come to do that. I've come to save them, not to burn them up. And so, here's a scripture. Proverbs 25, verse 8. Listen to it. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. In ancient days, cities without walls were in danger of being invaded by foreign forces. There was no protection, there was no security, nothing. And the writer here is saying that if we can't control our spirit, we are open to the enemy. And he will do what he wills because we have no protection. How many of us has discovered in a moment of passion, impulse, rage, or whatever you want to call it, that we just did not do the right thing, say the right thing, behave the right way, and we just opened ourselves to every kind of thing imaginable. Bitterness, hatred, revenge, vengeance, because we did not control our spirit. And as believers particularly, we should be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And if you read the fruit of the Spirit, find out what it says about the fruit of the Spirit. And you'll find that a lot of it is having control of our senses and our spirit so that we're not open like a city broken down and without walls. <clears throat> so we see here that he was saying their cruelty and their vengeance had gone far, far too far. Punishment didn't fit the crime. Oh, yes, it was wrong what was done and right for them to protest or do something, even if they just had killed the perpetrator. But to kill the father and all the males and then to take captive and even the little ones and then to even to cut the legs of the cattle, I mean, it just was, it just showed you what was their nature and what was in their hearts. And so because of that, in verse 7, Jacob says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, Simeon and Levi would not receive a tribal portion of land like the rest. And Jacob's prophecy here about scattering would literally be fulfilled, would surely come true. Now, the book of Joshua, which you don't need to turn to, has various divisions like all the books of the Bible. But the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua uh, tells us how that the children of Israel went in and they, they got the promised land and how they 
took the land. And then the next nine chapters of Joshua tells us how they divided out the land and where the portions of land for each tribe would be. In Joshua 19, in verses 1 to 9, again, you, because of time, you don't need to turn to this, but it tells us right there in Joshua 19, the first nine verses, that Simeon's inheritance was within the inheritance of Judah. And 17 cities were allocated to them within the inheritance of Judah. Not for themselves. They had no big tract of land themselves. But they were given 17 cities within the inheritance of Judah. Judah had one of the largest tracts of land of all of the tribes. So just a very, very, very small part of that. In fact, historians say that the part they did got was desert part. It wasn't very good. And these little cities were scattered throughout that area. And so that prophecy was coming true literally. And then according to the two censuses taken in Numbers, 20, Numbers 26 and Numbers chapter 1, before the 40 years wandering in the wilderness and just after the 40 years wandering in the wilderness when people died off and others were born, lo and behold, you discovered that there was a drastic reduction in the tribe of Simeon. They went from 59,300 to 22,200. That's a big, big drop. And so they're not in good shape by now. In fact, at this point, they become the smallest tribe in Israel. So what was to happen to the tribe of Levi? How were they scattered? Well, in Numbers chapter 35, it says that God orders that the Levites, instead of being given land, they were given 48 cities that would be scattered throughout the whole nation. No land but 48 cities and the suburbs. And so the prophecy of Jacob was literally fulfilled in both these sons' lives and in the lives of their tribes. However, because they had no land, the Levites, and because God had appointed them to be the priests unto God, who were to faithfully minister before the Lord, that would be their full-time vocation, as it were. They were to be supported because they had no land, no agriculture for them, no crops for them to grow and to sell. They were to be supported by the tithes and offerings of the people of Israel. That's how they got their support. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that. Now, let's just stop just for a moment before we get ahead of ourselves. How in the world both Simeon and Levi, who both did the same thing, who both found themselves in the same position because of vengeance, because of a wrong action, and told to be scattered, how come Levi, who was just as bad as Simeon, how come he gets to be the tribe of the priests and gets the support of all the people of Israel? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? How would that happen? Well, we're going to find out. Exodus chapter 32 tells us. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 32. In fact, the last verse of, of Exodus 31, we'll read 
First of all, the last verse of Exodus 31. Speaking of Moses, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, that is God speaking to him, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the Ten Commandments written in stone by God's finger. But look at chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, now Moses was up the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That's almost six weeks. That's not a long time really. But we see what happens in just six weeks. So when they saw that he delayed coming down the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, remember Aaron's the high priest of the tribe of Levi, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So you can see they're speaking very disrespectfully against God's leader, Moses. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which were in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Aaron's Moses' brother. you think he would have known better. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Notice he fashioned it with an engraving tool. He made a molded calf. And they said, this is, our, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Can you believe that this people who saw mighty, miraculous acts of God, who saw Red Sea openings, can you, can you believe that in just six weeks, these people had backslid so much that they'd made a golden calf and says, this is our God. It's incredible, isn't it? So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. This just gets worse, by the way. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. What a disgrace, even bringing the Lord into this. And they rose up early on the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's a telling statement, isn't it? Rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down for your people whom you brought out of Eden, the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves, and they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Wow. What an offer. What an opportunity. But Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn against hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the, from the face of the earth? 
Turn away your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. (laughs) What a man Moses was, eh? Reminding the Lord of his promises. Say, Lord, don't do this. The Egyptians will only laugh. So the Lord repented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. The two tablets of testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writings was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made and burned it in fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the water and made the children of Israel to drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. (laughs) Why is it there? What a lie. What a big porky pie that was, eh? As if God didn't know. I mean, it just shows you when you backslide how stupid and daft you can get and sin, isn't it? And uh, of course, verse 25, Now then Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Note this. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now, Moses said, who is on my side? In other words, who's on the Lord's side in this? Is that what you want over there, dancing to that golden calf? Or are you going to follow the Lord wholly? The Levites, Levites were the first to step up. And in effect, they're saying, we will follow the Lord. He says, okay, now go out and kill those who has rebelled against God. And they did that. And because they stood for the Lord, and because they stood against the sin of the people, God made them that great priestly tribe. Now there's a lesson in this. There's something that we can learn from all of this. 
<coughs> By the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, I should have read that too. Verse 8 it says, At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brother, brethren because the Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Now, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. And this well-known portion of Scripture. Partly given his testimony. Well, let me read from verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else think he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now note this. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. But I follow after. So I haven't got there yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm following after that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not have count myself to have apprehended. I haven't laid hold of everything yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But I press on. I follow after. The word is dioko. I pursue intensely with all my energy, with all the drive that's in me. It's interesting he uses this same word. In fact, he uses it in that very chapter. But I'm going to read just one verse from Galatians chapter 1, where again, he's sharing a little bit of his testimony. Verse 13, Galatians 1, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And the word persecuted is dioko. Same word. How I intensely with all the drive that was in me, I persecuted the church. I would have utterly destroyed them. His passion for destroying the church has now turned as a passion for building up the church. And Levi's passion, his impulse, his rage that got him into trouble at the right moment, in the right circumstances, that same passion to do the right thing 
was turned for good. And God honored him for that. All of us as passions, all of us as impulses, all of us rage at times, all of us as great intensity of drive for certain things. If we could turn that towards God, if we could turn that drive and passion for a godly cause, how much better it would be, amen? How much better it would be if we could do that? That's why very often you get somebody, Jesus says, he who is forgiven much loves much. That's often why you get somebody who has come out of, of terrible sin and terrible shame and a terrible lifestyle, and then they get Christ in their life, and they get filled with the Holy Ghost. That passion, that drive to do the wrong thing becomes a passion and drive to do the right thing. And sometimes they make the strongest Christians and give the greatest testimony because all that energy and drive to go the wrong way is now going the right way. So Simeon and Levi were zealous to avenge their sister's honor. But their zeal took them further than they should have went. It was misdirected. And Saul of Tarsus' zeal took him further than they should have went. It was also misdirected. But boy, when you get it in the right direction, when you get going in the right way, Romans chapter 10, 1 and 2, Paul says of Israel, he says, they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Several years ago, and I get his newsletter to this day, we had a, an Israeli pastor here, and a, uh, an Arab pastor. Both are great friends to this day. Uh, one's in, in Tel Aviv, and uh, the other is in Nazareth. The Israeli pastor, the Messianic believer, is in Tel Aviv, and the, uh, the Arab pastor is, is in Nazareth. And he says that the guy from Nazareth can come to me in Tel Aviv, but he says, I can't go to him. Uh, he says, I, I can't go into Nazareth. He said, the danger is not just for me, but for him. The fact that we can collaborate together as, as an Israeli and an Arab, as two believers. But both of them shared in here one time, at a leaders meeting I had, and uh, I remember him telling us that in Tel Aviv, which is a great holiday city, uh, he says that they have like a shop front, a cafe place that's changed now, but they had then. And he says, every day, he says, we set up shop and people come in for coffee and we give out tracts and we have Bible readings. And, and he says, almost every day of the week, he says, there's an Orthodox Jew, you know, with the ringlets and, you know, the hat. And they'll stand outside our shop and he says, they'll curse everybody that comes into it. Verbally, loudly, shouting, bawling, having to get the police almost every day. And he says, for anybody to come into our place, they've got to run the gauntlet of two or three of these guys standing up and shouting into their faces, you know. But he says, sometimes you're angry and sometimes upset you, sometimes you're mad at them. But then you begin to think, wait a minute, one of these could be an Apostle Paul. <laughs> I'm looking at a solid Tarsus, but one of these could be an Apostle Paul because that's what the Apostle Paul was like when he was Saul of Tarsus. When he was worse, he had to put you to death. But once that passion and that zeal that was misdirected, once God got a hold of it and focused it in the right way, well, he became the greatest apostle of all, didn't he? He did more work than that. He did more work probably than all of them put together because of that drive and that zeal. 
So would to God that we use all of our energies instead of misdirecting it, focus it on the right thing. So much of our time, so much of our talents, so much of our money, so much of our everything is given to the wrong thing. Not that it sometimes is bad, but it's just not in the right direction for God to use. But boy, if He can turn us around, it's wonderful. And so, that turnaround for Levi especially was a, a great blessing for that tribe, even to this very day. Still honored and recognized. Now we know that there's no longer a tabernacle, there's no longer a temple. And we know that, and we said before in this study, that whenever Titus in 70 AD came in and destroyed the great temple in Jerusalem, that all the archives of all the tribes and all the families was destroyed. And so there's no written record of where they came from, but there has been an oral record that's been handed down through the generations. And they put great stock in it. And so there are those who believe that they come from the tribe of Levi and are honored for that. And, and I, have, I have learned just this week that, that the descendants of the priestly tribe of Levi, they are the first to be asked to read the Torah in the synagogue. And they're the ones who's asked to close in prayer, the ironic prayer of number six at the end of the service. So even to this day, they're honored for that. And so, what am I saying this morning? What lesson can we learn? We can learn that lesson, can't we? That even though maybe we have misdirected our energies in the past, if we give that passion and drive and energy to God, He can focus it for our present and for our future. And even though perhaps you have lived a, a, a reprobate life in the past and did horrible things, sinful, truly wicked things that God can so change us and cleanse us and renew us that we can do great things for God in the future. And that's the testimony of many a man and many a woman today. They look at their life of what it was, they look at life of what it is, and they say, God has done this. <laughs> that's my testimony. The grace of God has worked in my heart and in my life and has changed me. And God will honor that. Amen. And so there is Simeon and Levi. And as we go on, we'll hopefully learn some fresh and new things about this uh, for the glory of God. Now listen, tonight I'm not going to...